people being brutally murdered by various weapons including an axe, a shotgun, a blender and a bear trap while listening to that, then you'd be right. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. It's just a few of the ways members of a family meet their end in new Australian horror film Red Christmas. It stars screen queen Dee Wallace as a matriarch who has invited her children to celebrate one last Christmas in their family home before it's sold. Amid celebrations and domestic drama, they receive a visit from a mysterious stranger. Disfigured and cloaked, they feel sorry for him until they discover his extreme religious motives and anti-abortion message. Red Christmas is directed by Craig Anderson, who joins us in this episode. Craig is a fascinating, passionate filmmaker who justifies his reasonings behind such a messed up premise, which you'll discover more about as the interview goes on. We should warn you though, some topics discussed in this podcast may be upsetting for some people, so your discretion is advised. Anyway, enjoy. Anderson, uh, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Thank you. Uh, so I want to get started by um, by asking you a bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and, and how did you get involved in the filmmaking industry? <laughs> uh, okay, I grew up in Western Sydney. Um, and for people not from Sydney, that's kind of like, oh, I don't know, the equivalents, the pub area. Um, it's, you know, it's where most of the people are. Everyone's very diverse out there. And Grew up in a public school and loved theatre and acting and movies and went to University of Western Sydney where I studied theatre because back in the day they used to have a course there. And from there I kind of stumbled into it because I was doing a lot of theatre. But my friend and I made a film for Tropfest called Life in a Datsun back in 1999 and that went very well. We won Best Comedy and Best Actor. And after that we uh, started talking to people who made stuff. And back then it was awesome because – there was no internet, so people had to go to a bar to show their short films to each other. So you got to meet tons of people. Yeah, and then pretty much after that, I went to ABC and uh, made some shows called Double the Fist and then helped out on a lot of stuff, uh, Review and Moody's, and either was producing or acting or making. I did some directing on black comedy and have done a lot of comedy stuff in, in Australia. That's interesting because, uh, you know, Red Christmas is obviously a horror film. Um, did, did you always want to go into making horror films? Yeah, I mean, they're both horror and comedy are my two, you know, big passions. And growing up and, and coming into the industry, we were still making comedy shows. I mean, we still make a few now. We don't make heaps. It's not like the boom of the 80s or anything. But we still make comedy TV. But what we don't do all the time is horror. Like, you know, maybe once or twice a year there's a horror film made somewhere in the country. Mm. But there's comedy being made fairly regularly out of ABC and SBS. So I kind of just moved into comedy because it was the thing to do. And there was money for it and I could get a little bit of work doing comedy. So I was happy enough to do that. But I've always loved horror and I um, 
have always wanted to make a horror movie. So I pretty much decided after doing a lot of television work, uh, it would be awesome to do the thing I really like, which is horror. Um, it, the Tell us about Red Christmas. Tell, tell us a bit about the story of the film. All right. So the, I guess the plot is that um, a mother, played by Dee Wallace, the, the uh, actor from E.T., uh, has gotten her adult family together on Christmas Day in a rural country house, a nice house in the middle of nowhere, and he's going to have a Christmas dinner with them all. And they all arrive, and we go through lots of family drama stuff, like a Nancy Myers or a Nora Ephron-type film. And eventually there's a door, you know, a ding-dong at the door, and there's a dude there in a hood, and he turns out to be okay. And nice enough that they let him in. They think he's, you know, he's not completely there. And he comes inside, and throughout the course of the film, it's revealed that he thinks or he says that he is... <laughs> And this is where you may stop listening. Um, the aborted, the, the survivor of an abortion that the mother had 20 years ago. And that causes some drama amongst the family. Eventually, he gets rejected by the household and kicked out. And then he loses his mind because he's a right-wing conservative Christian type. And he goes nuts and comes back. And then the movie is a slasher film for the last 50 minutes as the dude in a hood starts killing the family. <laughs> I had to laugh a little bit there when you said D. Wallace, the actor from E.T., because my brother <laughs> said to me recently, why the fuck do you always have to tell me who D. Wallace is whenever you mention her name? <laughs> I know she's from E.T. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I love people who know who D. is. It's yeah. the best. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she's such a horror staple from the 80s, Cujo and The Howling, and she's worked with just about every you know great director that, that I like, mm -hmm. both in horror and sci-fi, and even... Blake Edwards, who made the Pink Panther movies, worked with her in 10. Wow. Um, and I got to talk to her about, you know, working on 10 and stuff. But even all the way to Peter um, Jackson, she came over for The Frighteners. The, oh, that, yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. yeah, Michael J. Fox film from in the late 90s. And um, she told, talks about working with him and living in Wellington and shooting that. Yeah, she's, she's a fantastic person. To I want to uh, talk, talk a bit to. more about uh, Dee later. But um, mm -hmm. go, so going back to Cletus, uh, you've successfully yes. created the most uh, <laughs> fucked up Australian horror film character in recent memory. Uh, is that Good. what you originally set out to do? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Like, I, I think that today there's a lot of films being made and, and the people have access to the technology to make those films. So I think eventually, and because here's the thing, I collect VHS tapes and I've been all around Australia collecting videotapes and now I've got 11,000 in my warehouse and they're mostly films you don't see anywhere else. And just watching those, the things that stand out, whether they're good quality or bad quality, are the ideas that are off the wall. If something is nuts and you can put it on a video cover and you see that video cover, you go, oh my God, that, that's insane. I need to see this film. Mm -hmm. And I think now that people are making films so much and that there's so much good quality movies out there, I think ideas are the things that need to be more extreme or pushed to the edge. So I sat down and tried to think of the stupidest ideas. And I, you know, giving myself permission by calling them stupid ideas. And it's a pretty stupid idea to think of a, you know, an abortus taking revenge on its family. Uh, you know, yeah. Abortus is what they call uh, something that is aborted. <laughs> so, yeah. so was there any uh, agenda that you were trying to push with this character? Oh, man. I've just been in America for five weeks because it had a theatrical release there, and I have been answering that question a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it is an exciting time over there. Um, 
because basically when I wrote it, I, I read the first draft and it was kind of ridiculous, like a stupid John Frankenheimer, uh, not Frankenheimer, Frankenletter, the guy who made Frankenhooker and other ridiculous films. So It's Alive, which is about a little baby that kills people. And so it was kind of stupid. And then I thought, well, this doesn't really align with my personal beliefs that I think, yeah, everyone should have access to medical care. What the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. So I rewrote it. I spoke to a lot of women. I spoke to some midwives. I did lots of research and altered the, you know, rewrote the script to become more sensitive. But basically, at the end of the day, what the pro-life or the, the, the anti-choice people do is they will make the thing about a human being because that's when it becomes murder. Mm. So if you if you personify the fetus or the clump of cells that are developing inside a womb and you say, hey, that's a human, therefore you're committing murder, therefore this should not be allowed. Mm. And the simple fact that I've made my main character that, it's kind of a pro-life statement and I have to suck it up. But mm. what I did, I guess, was work hard. And also with Dee Wallace, she gave me great input on the script for this, to make her have a very pro-choice stance throughout the film. And the simple fact is, the movie, the whole thing occurs because a right-wing guy blows up a clinic and rescues this abortion. So once again, you know, a a male nut has stopped a woman having a choice and now it's coming back to haunt her and destroy her family, which is the very reason she didn't want to have it in the first place. So Mm. that's, yeah, it, it, it has an agenda... On both sides, people, but I think it's one of those things where whatever side you're on is the side you'll see when you watch it. Yes, that's very true. Um, And, of course, Cletus isn't the only uh, surviving fetus in horror films to come back to kill uh, after an attempted abortion. Uh, I came across a film last night called The Suckling in 1990. Uh, Are you aware of any other characters uh, (laughs) similar to Cletus? No, not really. Man, I don't even know about The Suckling. Oh, you should Um, check it out. Check out the trailer. (laughs) Oh, okay, that's awesome. I'd seen one or two that looked dodgy. Maybe The Suckling is one of those. Is it a very poor, dodgy-looking film? Very poor, yeah. yeah. yeah okay, good. Yeah. Then maybe it is the one I saw, because I looked up abortion a lot. And I think it's interesting because horror is meant to deal with taboo subjects. Right. But most of the time it only ever deals with men wanting to kill women, yes. <laughs> which is really not taboo. It's like the most common cause of murder on earth. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hypocritical in a way and because i've come from comedy i know what it's like to do cheap humor and i think it's the same for cheap horror because you go for very obvious fearful things like oh it's dark that's scary Mm -hmm. but i think in society there's really big taboos and abortion's one of them and i did a lot of looking into movies that had abortions in them and the the most famous one in horror lexicon is probably um, I mean, there's some a Korean film called Dumplings, uh, and or I think it's Hong Chinese, and it's fantastic. Um, but that's not really about abortion. It's just about a woman who does abortions, but then sells on the <laughs> sells on the baby fetuses inside of dumplings to rich people to you know improve their lives. Oh wow! But um, the movie Black Christmas is why I named mine Red Christmas because in that movie it's the first ever. It's, you know, it's like the original slasher from 1974. And it's about a woman who's at college on Christmas Eve who tells her partner, hey, I want to have an abortion. He flips out and goes nuts. And then she goes back to her dorm and people start dying. And you're not sure if it's the angry boyfriend 
or the creepy thing in the uh, upstairs attic. Right, right, because yes. I looked into uh, Black Christmas, but I didn't actually realise that that's how the film started. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah I kind of thought of it like a somehow spiritually a sequel almost in that it's a woman. And, and when I was casting, I was looking at women who were in the 70s in horror movies, slasher movies particularly, because I thought that was a cool thing to have a woman who was at that point uh, – you know, in her early 20s at college and now at the other side of her life in her 60s is is living with a grown-up family but the same topic and the same idea that a slasher movie comes back to haunt her. Right. And that's, you know, Dee was perfect because she fits all those things of being in horror movies before. Certainly. Um, yeah, so basically in The Suckling, uh, the fetus ends up in toxic ooze and uh, com- comes back as a, as a mutant to, to kill uh, his parents. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so nuts. I, when, when researching whether this was possible, I found out there are a few people, not a few people, a bunch of people who survive abortions yeah, each year. Yeah, yeah. and um, there's a very famous Republican um, Christian woman in, in America called Gianna Jensen, and she is very vocal about uh, abortion rights, uh, not not on the pro-choice side, obviously, but she's <laughs> she's very vocal about, you know, stopping all abortions because she, she survived the saline abortion about 25 years ago. Right. And so, yeah, talking to midwives about whether or not this was even possible that people could survive abortions, I learned a lot about, you know, the whole process and that, yeah, people do survive. Oh, fascinating. Um, so Red Christmas had its world premiere at the Sydney Film Festival last year and has been on the uh, US festival circuit. Uh, Was there a noticeable difference in how the film was received in each country? (laughs) Well, you know, Sydney is a very high-class festival when the focus is on quality storytelling. And I was lucky. uh, Richard Kuypers um, put me in the the weird and wacky, the horror section, he gets to program 20 films. And it's good because he also retro programs things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for instance, or American Werewolf in London. So it's good to be in that group. Um, but Sydney is a very high-class thing, and they, they, the focus is on, you know, um, Down Under, for instance, premiered there, which is a fantastic comedy by Abe Forsyth. Yes. But it's, it deals with Islam and, you know, Australia and, and, and the, the Cronulla riots, and it's very much about Australia, whereas my film's just a wacky horror film. So when I went overseas, where there are um, the first premiere after that was in Canada at the at, uh, Fantasia Fest, that was fantastic because in Sydney it was kind of like, oh yeah, that's occurring, <laughs> but in, in in Canada and then it went to UK. It was like there are thousands of people who love horror and sci-fi and fantasy. And they came out in droves and were so pumped and, you know, had a massive cinema filled with 700 people pumped to see the movie. And it's such a different experience of knowing that that's my audience, that that's where the film sits. Mm. Whereas in Australia, it doesn't necessarily sit here. You know, our film industry makes a lot of awesome, high-quality dramas, but that's not horror. And the audiences are people who still go to cinemas who are usually a little older, Mm. who aren't going to see wacky Australian horror films. They, if they do see horror films in this country, they'll see the massively mass-produced, you know, Saw franchises or the Conjuring franchises, and that's totally fine. But, yeah, going overseas to festivals and in America as well, people, it was it was a lot more exciting. So give us an example of uh, some of the audience responses that you had uh, in both countries or in one of the countries. <laughs> uh, well, in, in Canada, I had... Uh, a guy do a fan art, which was fantastic. He d- he draws, you know, little cartoons of villains from horror history. And the day after, he sent me an image of Cletus, which 
was like my dream come true because that's how I helped design him to try and find an image of a bad guy that you couldn't copy or doesn't exist before. So I was so excited to see his, you know, 100 drawings of other villains and mine sitting there and looking original. Wow. So that was fun. Yeah, and then just all around, just meeting people. And a, a really interesting thing is speaking to women afterwards who, who come up to me to tell me about their abortion. Wow. <laughs> it, it's, and it, I mean, that's not the response you want you expect for a horror film, but I have had a, a few intimate conversations with women who talked about how it does, you know, it is a concern. It does plague them and that there are things that goes on in their mind and uh, is it interesting and uh, I mean they, they describe what happened to them and they said that made them think about things and it's cool because they also know I, I tell them hey what you did was okay mm. but they said they still process it yeah. and in, in my writing process I talk to women and, and some who had had abortions and they do say yeah that is something that is in their mind and and I feel horrible like some misogynist nut who's, who's making women feel bad but I, I try to be sensitive in the movie and when I speak to women about it because I think it's an amazing thing that there is no you know sometimes you do need crazy stories that tell that so that you can speak about it mm-hmm. and the last experience just last week it premiered in LA and I was there in the cinema and afterwards this um, awesome African-American woman came up to me and she was just raving she goes I grew up with Freddie and Jason she was just so pumped and excited and then she took me aside and goes and I had an abortion <laughs> and that made me think because that's somehow I, I, sometimes I think about it yeah. and I think what would have happened and I think did I you'd do the right thing and I go well you know how do you feel about this film it's, I hope it doesn't make you feel bad and she said no but it makes me think because that's what real fear is you know that's what real drama in my head is going on dreams you know crazy stuff and I said oh well I'm glad that this film, this idiotic film helped you think about it so you were pre- you were prepared for these reactions obviously yeah, I had definitely done a lot of thought because the last thing I wanted to do was be a, a jerky, mis, you know, misogynist guy who, who makes people feel bad mm. about about abortion because I think that's the, that would be the, the the worst thing for a film to do, you know. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I was fascinated with propaganda films and the way Christian films have this really ridiculous agenda that come from nowhere and the underdog themes that are in those movies. And in my movie, Cletus comes across a lot like the Elephant Man, mm-hmm. who is a very sympathetic character in that David Lynch film, in that you feel sorry for this dude and you just wish he'd kick everyone's ass who is teasing him, you know. And so I kind of used that story, that that thing when dealing with my villain, to make him have a rationale, like you understand why he'd be upset. And mm-hmm. I, I love Greek tragedy and... I had the for both D, who plays the hero, and for Cletus, the villain, the actor Sam Campbell is a comedian, and I told them both, it's your story, and I want you to feel like this is your story, and you need to, you know, I was on both their sides. I didn't mm. say that one is worse or one is good or bad and said you should both go through this story because that's what makes good tragedy and make people, you know, think about stuff is because I think when it's very clear cut, like a fairy tale where oh, that's bad, the wolf is bad. Mm. Well, that's not fair. Humans aren't always bad. There's different reasons for things. So, yeah, I was sort of conscious that this would cause a lot of trouble. <laughs> and and it, it's just recently sold to Netflix in America. So in December it's coming out at Christmas time and Netflix <laughs> is going to push it like a, a Christmas movie. And I am terrified of the emails and Twitter <laughs> messages I'm going to get from people going, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> oh, well, yeah. this is why I love talking to filmmakers so much, because this, uh, because of this insight that you get into the making of the movie. 
You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, I read recently that the lighting in Red Christmas may have been influenced by a Joe Dante segment in uh, Twilight Zone, the movie. Um, <laughs> and Joe also directed uh, The Howling, which starred uh, Dee Wallace. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell about Joe's influence on this film. Oh, man, I love Joe Dante. I love his classic. He does that awesome retroactive look at the, the 50s and 60s of rock and roll teenage culture in all his movies. But I have no idea. Uh, I did not have any uh, in regards to lighting. I was inspired by a, a 1950s, which maybe is close to Joe's work, um, <laughs> a 1950s cartoon of the Chipmunks, a Disney cartoon, where they go inside a Christmas tree. Donald Duck cuts down a tree, takes it inside. And then it's an eight-minute, one of those awesome 50s cartoons, colourful thing. And every branch they go to on the Christmas tree, there's a different bulb on the of Christmas lights, and it lights the room differently. Right. So when we when things go bad in the horror film and everything goes into, like, a dream state, I have every room a different colour. Yes. And another thing people keep pointing out is it's very similar to this Italian film called Suspiria, a giallo genre film from the 70s. Yes. And, and that is true on set. We would refer to that lighting state as this is a Suspiria lighting shot where we would just do the whole room in um, a single colour. Right. So basically, yes, it was inspired by a Christmas uh, cartoon from the 50s. Ah, okay, there you go. So are you familiar with the the segment from the Twilight Zone of Joe's? Which one is it? It's, uh, I mean, I know the movie. Oh, I can't remember the title now. Is it This Boy's Life? Or it's the one about the young boy. um, They did a Simpsons episode based on it. If you're not thinking no. positive thoughts, then he'll kill you. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, right. I have. I will have to watch that again to see the lighting states in it. I mean, I, I obviously remember the horror of it. But, <laughs> yeah, but not the lighting. But, yeah, the, the lighting, no. So that's. I'm glad that – and that's what's awesome as well because it's as a horror film, it gets a lot of press because there is a built-in audience for horror. Mm-hmm. So I've had like hundreds of reviews and, and gotten to do lots of great – podcasts across the world and 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 interviews and everyone brings something different it's kind of like holding up um it's you know what it's like doing contemporary art if it was (laughs) this is a horrible statement if it was more relevant to the general public for instance (laughs) in in that there's a lot of people giving you feedback you know you'll Mm. do an artwork in a or a theater show and you'll have a hundred people come and you'll get 10 people say some stuff and you'll never hear about it again yes with this horror film it's non like i've spent the last year and a half hearing different opinions and different readings and different suggestions on what's going on in the movie, which mm. is so exciting. Like, yeah. it's it just keeps live, breathing, so to speak. Oh, yeah, and you'll get it forever. It, it's something that will live on forever. Yeah, well, I hope so. Well, <laughs> Unless that... it's really bad and people ban it. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> no good. Um, whenever I see Dee Wallace on screen, I'm reminded uh, what a terrific actor she is. She's fantastic. Uh, mm. How did you convince her to come on board? I mean, I can't imagine that she had to audition for this. <laughs> Of course not, no. Well, I mean, I was looking for, I knew that a woman in her 60s from horror past would be excellent and it would fit the, you know, the motive of the story. And I was looking at all types of screen queens and I was talking for a while to Elvira, Cassandra Peterson, who plays Elvira, who's a fantastic performer, but she's only ever really done Elvira, except for one small segment in Pee Wee Herman movie. Right. Um, but she she was so, because Elvira is such a massive, like, 
there's only a couple of people in the world that have two pinballs, and she's one of them. <laughs> two pinball machines named after her, you know. So she's such a big industry of her of herself for trademark. She was. Um, it just became so hard to get it down to Australia for two weeks. Mm. Um, so I was speaking to a lot of people, and then. I totally wasn't considering because it wasn't on my radar. And then I asked uh, uh, some friends in Melbourne who, who do academic horror stuff, and they said, "What? why aren't you asking D?" And a, a writer called Lee Gambin, who's just written a whole book about Cujo, said Lee would uh, that D would look at the script. So I got her the script. Fortunately, she really liked it, and she called on a Skype call and said, okay, let's talk about what you want to do. And because she's been stuck, you know, it's it sucks because women in their, you know, over 40s, there's that awesome Amy Schumer <laughs> sketch with, um, who, who's Elaine um, from Veep? Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, it's, it's, it's true that women don't get much roles as they reach, you know, over 40, for yeah. instance. Yeah. So being in the 60s and also being in horror, there's not real a place for women um, other than playing grandmothers or real estate agents or just small roles. So I was very excited that, and Dee was excited, this is a script where she gets to kick ass and, you know, save her family and be the the, her- the hero of the film. And LA Times pointed that out yeah. and did this awesome review. And I'm sure it, it sent her over the moon. I was over there at the time just being relevant again, so to speak, you know. Um, so she read it and she liked the idea of it. She gave me one note, which... I thought about for a while and then went with, which was originally I was going to kill a kid (laughs) in the, in the script that there was going to be a little girl in the movie, uh, a part of the family. And then uh, she said, "Uh, you shouldn't do that. And she, she, the best thing about D is she's worked with Wes, you know, Wes Crane, Spielberg, um, Joe Dante, uh, so many famous people that you got to listen to her. And the story she's got makes sense. She said in, in Cujo, she felt that, at the end of the, the story, the little boy, Danny, shouldn't die. It didn't feel right. But Stephen King's original story has her, has the kid die. Mm. And then she started campaigning on set to let the kid live. Really? And then it turns out that that's like an awesome movie. And Stephen King said um, that was one of his, for many years, it was his favorite adaption of any of his work was Cujo. And primarily because he said, when he published it, he got so many letters from people saying, why did you kill the kid? Yeah. And then he felt bad about it. And then the film rectified because Dee kept pushing for it. Oh. So I, I kind of went, you know what? I'm going to listen to the woman who's convinced Stephen King that he made a mistake <laughs> and, and just go with whatever the hell she says. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's terrific. That's a great story. Um, yeah, it's excellent. And, I mean, the entire cast are terrific, but uh, one particular standout for me was Jared O'Dwyer. Uh, can you tell mm-hmm. us a bit about working with him on his first feature film? For sure. Jared is a, an awesome performer. He has an intellectual disability. I, I met him once um, in theatre about 10 years ago, just being a guy going out and, and doing stuff in community theatre. And he was there as a part of something uh, called Powerhouse Youth Theatre's uh, ex, uh, arts, um, accessible arts kind of thing, where it's like helping people who may not have access to arts funding do stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was doing shows out there, and I thought he was fantastic. And then an excellent woman who I'd kind of helped out on Double the Fish, she came to do interning, made a short film called Be My Brother that went really well at Tropfest. It won Best Film and he won Best Actor. And I was the first AD on the day and helping him, you know, just mentoring that group as they made that film. And it did really well and he's awesome. And then he's been in other stuff. And I just keep working with him on comedy things mostly. I directed some comedy theatre with him and I just knew he could act as well as well better than most people yeah. because he has a 
his way of understanding the world is through emotion, and he has a very emotionally responsive uh, persona. So when he's on a set and he's acting with people, he responds emotionally, yeah. which is everything you want an actor to do, and you know, in a good naturalistic structure. Yes. So he's fantastic, and and so I, I, I approached him, and I all I, I knew originally. I wanted him to be in the movie purely because he's a great actor and adds stuff to the cast. But as I did my second draft and had spoken to a lot of people about uh, the reproductive rights issues, one of the things that came up was eugenics and the idea that selecting who can and be born and who can't be born is like a big thing and that there are some disability activists who go, what the hell is it? Why is everyone aborting us? Mm-hmm. But then I'd also worked with a lot of people with disability and did a whole documentary about humour and, and laughter with disability. And I asked a lot of parents of people with disabilities, would you do this again? Mm-hmm. And I was all across the board. They said, no, really? we would not do this again. Well, we well, love this kid yeah. and we're on board with this kid and this is great. Yeah. But if you gave us the choice for this again, no. Right. And I thought, fuck, that, that's amazing. Mm. And so in my film, you know, I felt sad because I just wanted Jared to be a dude in the film and just be another awesome part of it. But I then asked him, I approached him and said, hey, this is something that could add a lot of, you know, good value and story to the film and you'd get to, you know, play out this whole thing because in the movie this plays out now. Yeah. He, The story of um, there's a relationship with Down syndrome and, and, and him and, and his mother's choice and stuff. And... He said yes, he'll go along with it, but, you know, it's sad because he only wants to be known just as an actor and not as an actor with Down syndrome. I mean, I yes, totally yes. got it because there's another performer in it, Bjorn Stewart, who I worked with on Black Comedy. I directed some of Black Comedy, and he's a fantastic performer, and he's indigenous. Yeah. And even on the on Black Comedy, he would be writing sketches that had nothing to do with with race no. and just hand them in and they'd go, no, <laughs> why don't you do something about being black? And he's like, mm, no, why can't I just do a comedy? Yeah. And he, he, this is the first, he told me when we were making it, you know, this is the first time I got to be in a film that I didn't have to say I was indigenous in it. Oh, I just wow. had to be a dude in it. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I love that and I'm, yeah. I'm on board with that. And I felt bad that Jared had to use the words Down Syndrome in the movie. Mm. But um, I've promised him next movie I'll, I'll never make him do that again. But, yeah, <laughs> he's he's very good in the movie, and he does well overseas. A lot of people think he's great. He uh, is. Have been writing great stuff about him. Yeah, mm, mm, no, he was he was terrific. Um, so exploitation, exploitation. Uh, what are your mm-hmm. what are some of your favourite films? Um, uh, <laughs> m- maybe start with exploitation, considering this yes. is an Australian film podcast. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, I love Razorback. And I love the, the, the way it's shot and the way it's lit. Razorback is the giant pig in the outback that's that's just, you know, killing people like a slasher movie. Yeah. I think that's an awesome movie. Oh, man, there are so many. Patrick, I've watched recently again. That's a good movie. I think that's good. I found this, because I collect VHS tapes, I found a couple that not many people know about, and one is called Lenore. Okay. Um, and it's like 1986. I don't think it exists anywhere except on this VHS tape. And it is, it's the perfect blend of a David Williamson, okay, g'day mate, how you going? You know, <laughs> male type world with a slasher film, which usually has to deal with, you know, feminist undertones. Like a lot of slasher movies have got a weird... You know, there's knives and there's curves and they're well lit and there's a focus on women. But some, often the women are beautiful and, and there's always people survive. Women are final girls to survive. And there's a lot of writing saying that, you know, slasher films can be feminist 
texts, and I think that's true. And so this movie, Lenore, is the re- most ridiculous blend of G'day, how you going? with <laughs> slasher film, and it just doesn't make sense because it goes from weird scenes of men standing around talking about a car and then into very sexy shot slasher things. So, yeah, I mean, that's not very useful to people at home listening because that's the, the, I have that mate. come over and watch <laughs> I'm in Sydney in a warehouse come and watch it in my warehouse but I, yeah I, I've always loved exploitation films from around the world because um, I think that the, what they can do is make you think about things you would never think about you know they're like the extremes of things mm. and being shoddy or schlocky or over the top gives permission to deal with stuff yes and even even as a director when I was um planning to do this uh, and writing on the wall I was looking at first films that that broke out that became big things and there's a lot of schlock on there you know John Waters first film and David Lynch's first film um, Peter Jackson's first film like so many directors had done ridiculous things and even small smaller examples of Napoleon Dynamite or not the Blair Witch or Paranormal are small examples but they were small in their production yes when you do something that's exploitational or wacky or over the top you've got permission to let the art not be so good, so to speak, mm. to to not be so um, restrained by is every shot beautiful because the, the focus is now on the content and the, the ridiculousness of, of the mise-en-scene as opposed to, oh, this was a beautiful camera move into a beautifully lit shot-through-glass look at the outback or something. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, I love it how you talk about uh, your VHS collection because uh, it, it makes you know for our younger listeners out there that's how we discovered films. That's that's uh, yeah. you know we didn't hear about it because every single other person on the planet was talking about it. We discovered it ourselves on our own in a video mm. shop. You know, um, yeah, it was great. And you know, for people that don't know, VHS is video. It's, it's yes. we're talking about big hardcore cartridges that you put in a machine and it would play a movie like a DVD. Yes, and. They, there were thousands here, and then they started in the late 90s to become DVDs, mm. and videos disappeared. Mm. But what I have now is like a library. It's set out like in genres, and I just walk around, and discovering stuff yeah. is the best thing. Because yeah. you don't discover like you do on VHS. Um, choice of font was very important. Posters yes. were important. Yeah. Information on the back. The genre it was standing in was important because mm. it was more like you walked over to a feeling that you wanted to have. <laughs> New releases were important. Like there were so many exciting things about VHS that and video stores being a physical thing. And also it was community. Yes. There, there was someone who owned the shop who you would talk to and go, have you seen this? Is it good? Yes. <laughs> or what do you think I should watch? And yep. people would try and work it out. Yeah. And even as a kid – you would see what all the other kids were running into the store to grab and go, oh, my God, I've got to see Running Man. Yeah. <laughs> or I've got to see Terminator. That's what everybody's grabbing. Okay, so that means next time I'm here, I've got to try and grab that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it, it was a different world then where art, was physical still for film anyway yeah my mum used to work in a video store and it was some of the best memories of my life it's where i discovered all of my films um so what's next for you as a director wow okay well i've just spent a lot this year doing producing for abc for a series of short things for uh, an initiative called fresh blood where screen australia and abc have given a whole bunch of 20 comedians or comic groups monies to make a web series and that's going to go live in december um so that I mean, not that that's me. <laughs> I'm writing more horror films, and I've written an action comedy that's set in Australia, 
um, that I'm going to start trying to get made that's about terrorism. And basically every film I write is dealing with some stupid subject that is going to get me in trouble. But <laughs> I, I'm happy with that because I figure why not? Yeah. Um, and a friend of mine, Celeste Barber, is an Instagram famous woman who does parody photos of celebrities. And she's oh, gotten yes. so big now. Yeah. yeah. Um, 2.3 million followers online. And so she and I have made a web series that comes out in February on ABC. And uh, we also have started touring her live show. <laughs> it sounds so random. But, yeah, I'm going to be working. With, I do the video and the, the talking on stage with her. And she does the comedy of her being Celeste Barber and having interactions with wacky celebrities as she makes fun of them. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> It's a weird world going from horror back to comedy, but I love it. I, you know, I love both, so that's what I'm up to now. And uh, finally, you mentioned that the ABC, you have made a documentary on the making of Red Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend, a filmmaker, Gary Dowston. He made a series called Next Stop Hollywood, which was following six actors who go over to LA, and I was one of those actors. All the others were good-looking young actors. <laughs> and I was like this older, fat guy who's like, well, what's he going to do in America, in Hollywood? And it was awesome because I found out what I could do. There's mm. lots of spaces for me to exist there as a comic actor and also as a, a dude who makes stuff. And he documented that, and that was a series on the ABC. And then ABC Arts commissioned him <laughs> to film the making of my horror movie. So on Halloween night on ABC, they're going to show the first episode. It's two one hours, and then it goes over two weeks as it is uh, totally documents my process. Because I started off alone uh, in, a, in a warehouse just drawing things and pretending to be every department and having pretend meetings every day <laughs> as I tried to do everything by myself. And then as it got closer and tighter, I started to grab friends, and luckily I've got very talented friends who helped me make this movie. But, you know, the lighting guy who's getting all these great notices, even in Variety, wrote it how good the lighting is yeah. and name-checked him. He's Doug Bain. He, he's in Double the Fist as Mephisto. He's an actor. But he's also an animator. He's never done lighting in his life, and he used YouTube tutorials for the weeks <laughs> leading into shooting to learn how to light a movie. Wow, so, and the lighting was know, terrific. Yeah, and it's getting all these great notices around the world. So th there's a lot of exciting things that occurred in the documentary um, at the making of it, and fortunately ABC was you know, on top of it, and Gary saw that I was going to do this, and he knows I'm very passionate and will, you know, use all the money, every money I've ever earned on this movie, which I did. And you'll have to watch it to see how I go. Because <laughs> I haven't made all the money back yet, but, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. But it's, it's, it's a very exciting documentary. I can't wait to see it. Uh, Craig Anderson, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia thank podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to have you with us. I, yes. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on both iTunes and SoundCloud. For all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews, you can visit www.cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Cinema Australia. 